everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be talking about Season 7, Episode 18, Party On, Garth, written by Adam Glass and directed by Phil Segretia. There's a lot of good things in this week's episode, but before we start, I want to take a moment to marvel at the fact that I have now done a dozen, dozen of these things. There is a gross of Supernatural George, and we're still not even halfway through the series. We? Sure, there's a lot more to go, but I like to think we're all having fun. So let's party on with Garth. I love Garth, and I also love episodes that expand the lore and the supernatural universe in general, and I appreciate how this episode does all of that, even as Dean is desperately struggling after getting Cass back and then losing him again a few minutes later in last week's episode. Sure, it's great to have Sam whole and fully back to himself again, but that is just not enough to make Dean feel that much better about their overall situation. I know I've mentioned it before on this show, But nothing stays locked up forever, and eventually, you have to deal with the problems you tried to shove in a box and lock away. We've seen that over and over this season, from the curse box fiasco unleashed a few episodes back, to the main big bad of the season having been released from purgatory after being locked away there since the beginning of creation. It's one of the foundational themes of the entire series, from Hellgates getting sprung open to the darkness being freed at the end of season 10, and eventually the introduction of the empty. Chuck's go-to move is to lock up problems and then break those locks when they're narratively convenient so that he can blame all of his mistakes on others and milk it for all it's worth in suffering. And the shoujo loosely fits into that theme as well. We also address Dean's constant drinking this season in an interesting way. By having him be literally the only sober participant in the climactic fight scene. Which would seem to be an advantage for him except that the monster they're fighting is invisible unless you're drunk. The one time he's stone cold sober and it's actually working against him. We also see Dean once again struggling with mysterious occurrences that his gut tells him has to be Bobby somehow helping from beyond the grave. And we'll talk more about this when Dean and Garth are working together and again at the end of the episode, because obviously this is a big deal in a number of ways. And just in case I somehow forget to talk about any of them while going through the episode, I'm linking to my rewatch notes from July 2019 that cover all my thoughts on it pretty thoroughly. We also meet Mr. Fizzles, everyone's favorite lie-detecting sock puppet. And we also get to revisit Garth's magical ability to shatter Dean's usual performance mask, which I always appreciate. But this is really a turning point in the season and in the larger narrative that for once, at least a few big things are starting to swing their way. And we'll talk about that as we go through the episode too. But first, let's start with the then segment. 
We open with a montage of our intro to Garth, Dean first meeting him earlier this season, and then Bobby way back in Season 6, Episode 4, Weekend at Bobby's, talking to him on the phone, all illustrating that Garth is, well, let's charitably call it an unconventional hunter. We conclude with Bobby asking him how he's still alive, mixed with shots of him getting knocked out and missing the whole final battle of Season 7 Time for a Wedding, which we'll see is kind of a recurring theme for Garth in this episode. We also get a nice little quiet reminder that Bobby is lurking in the background, kind of like he's been doing the whole back half of this season. And that brings us to now, which opens on a bunch of young folks sitting around a campfire in the woods telling scary stories about a local ghost legend, Jenny Greentree, who supposedly froze to death in the very spot where they're camping, and her spirit still haunts those woods. Their fear reaction is cut short when a bottle smashes against a tree, but it turns out to have been thrown by a very drunk friend of theirs stumbling up to the group. The new kid's older brother was the one telling the stories, and he's concerned for his younger brother, who sarcastically taunts him about getting busted for drinking by their father. He's making a phone call to turn himself in when he suddenly stops. He hears something that frightens him, but nobody else seems to be able to hear it. He then sees something, warns everyone to run for it, and then takes off down the road. His brother is kind of frustrated and fed up with him. But a moment later, they hear the kid screaming. And when they find him a minute later, Trevor's been torn open and his dead body is left propped against a tree. And then we cut to the title card. After the title card, we see a Ford Ranchero blasting Belle Biv DeVoe and pulling up to a burger joint. Garth steps out, projecting confidence as he interviews a couple women at the restaurant who'd been sitting around that campfire in the cold open. He's posing as a U.S. Marshal and asking about the victim. One of the women was convinced that he really had been killed by the ghost of Jenny Greentree, so Garth thinks it'll be an easy salt and burn. He goes to the cemetery later that night and Garth's her. Back at the site of Trevor's death, his brother has returned, drinking in his car. He dismisses a phone call from a woman who's worried about him, presumably his mother, and goes walking through the woods armed with a rifle. He sees someone else out there, a woman who looks like she crawled straight out of the ring, and tries to hunt her down but she apparently catches up with him first. He's yoinked up off the ground, and we see the blood splatter and drip as he dies. Back in town, Garth's on the phone with someone he's clearly planning to meet up with now that he believes he's taken care of this hunt, but as he gets into his car to eat his dinner before leaving, he hears a call on the police radio about the new body just found up at Widow's Peak. Guess his date will have to wait. We then cut to Dean, riding shotgun and on the phone with Meg, talking about Cass. He's resigned, but disappointed that Cass is still comatose. 
He thought he had a win for a brief shining moment last week, and even though he has Sam right there with him and in full working order, it still feels like he snatched defeat from the jaws of victory regarding Cass. Meanwhile, Sam is feeling pretty good, but he's also feeling a little bit guilty about why and how he's feeling so good, only because he passed on the crazy to Cass, and he even mentions the ring, which kind of feeds right back into what this week's monster looks like. Dean tries to argue that's not what Sam did. He doesn't want Sam to feel responsible for Cass's current state, but Sam just doesn't want to discuss it anymore. Which is lucky for Sam that Garth calls Dean right then. Dean's clearly distracted by his other thoughts, because he doesn't even seem to remember who Garth is at first. But Garth says Dean promised him a favor in return for the previous case that Garth helped out with, and Garth is cashing in that chip. He tells them there's something brewing in Junction City, Kansas. And isn't that a hilarious way to talk about a case that revolves around a brewery? Of course it is. It's a real thigh slapper. (laughs) I think I'm funny. Okay? Shut up. Sam and Dean turn up at the coroner's office the next morning in their fed suits and find Garth in army fatigues, pretending to be a relation of the deceased who won't be able to attend the funeral. Sam and Dean just stare at Garth like, what the fuck? And the coroner says that it must be terrible for the family, losing two brothers so fast. Sam asks for the files on both autopsies, and then the coroner leaves to take a phone call, and they're finally free to ask Garth what the heck is going on. Garth only also just found out that the two victims were brothers, with the same exact cause of death, and Dean asks if Garth is allergic to suits. Garth is kind of defensive when he says that he just looks good in uniform. Sam goes over to use the computer while Garth fills them in on Jenny Greentree and what he's already done to salt and burn her ghost. Dean pulls out his EMF reader, and Garth says he already scanned the body and found none, but Dean's EMF starts flashing and screeching. Garth assumes that his EMF reader must be broken, but continues telling them how he salted and burned her bones already. She had no other possessions, she was homeless, and there shouldn't be anything else to tie her there. Garth is thinking it was some kind of monster, not a werewolf because the witnesses all agreed that what attacked the first victim was invisible. Dean suggests it could be an invisible ghost werewolf, which... Yeah, probably not, Dean, but, you know, he's got to try. And I love the easy camaraderie between Dean and Garth here. Like, in the car, it took Dean a second to even remember him. He was still a little gruff and judgy when they first arrived, like he had been the first time they worked together. But he warms right back up to Garth very quickly, and they resume the former strange little friendship that they had been developing. Meanwhile, Sam's looking up the victims and finds their family owns the Midwestern Brewing Company, who make a variety of beers with names like Thigh Slapper and Head Spinner and Hardhead. And Sam asks if Dean and Garth have ever heard of Thigh Slapper, 
and Dean has, but he thinks it's, quote, for douchebags. Sam says it's the number one microbrew in the Pacific Northwest, which confuses Garth because they're in Kansas. And Dean uses that fact to prove his point. The beer is for douchebags. And Garth delightfully points out the oddity of that fact for us. And Dean again falls right back into that easy camaraderie with him. Garth is just so good for Dean as a person. He's just constantly knocking Dean ever so slightly off balance. He doesn't react the way Dean expects him to. And he just comes out with these comments like his faith in humanity just cannot be shaken. And it all gives Dean a chance to just be a little softer, you know? And I appreciate that so much. And I'm going to try not to rhapsodize on it every time they interact, or this episode is just going to be freaking long. <laughs> but hopefully that was enough of a description for everyone listening to understand their friendship vibe. Sam says that the owner of the brewery was the father of the two dead brothers, and Garth just issues the order that he's going to change into his fed attire and will meet them at the brewery. When Garth leaves, Sam looks exasperated with him, and Dean just tries to smile and assure Sam that Garth grows on you. At the brewery, they meet a woman named Marie who's coming on a Sunday to help them out. Her father is a partner in the brewery. The two murdered boys are her younger brothers, and a third partner had apparently died recently. They see the other partner, Randy Baxter, is chewing out a teenaged employee for being late, threatening to fire him if he's late again. Marie assures them that Randy is actually a really nice guy, except when he has to play the axe man. And Dean agrees with her that's not an easy job, though I imagine Dean means that with a literal axe and not just firing people. Garth and Sam then leave to talk to Mr. McCann, the father of the two murdered boys, as well as Baxter. When they ask about any enemies the boys may have had, Mr. McCann is confused because they were animal attacks, right? He's flustered and clearly distressed, which is entirely appropriate and reasonable considering the week he's had. So Baxter lives up to that really nice guy label and offers to talk to the feds for him. Meanwhile, out in the brewery, Dean's talking to Marie. Their father had blamed himself for the death of their third partner, Dale, and now Dale's widow is suing the brewery. So there's tension all around. Back in the office, Baxter says he's godfather to all of McCann's kids, and that they'd never do anything crazy. He's got no kids of his own, but he thinks of the McCann kids like his own. We learn that Dale, the third partner, had committed suicide, and he had been troubled for a long time before that, despite the brewery having just sold Thigh Slapper Ale to a big nationwide distributor. It was supposed to be a big success for them, but nobody feels like celebrating now. While he talks, Sam notices a strange wooden box with Japanese characters on the shelf behind Baxter, and we've just met Chekhov's shoujo. 
We zoom in on a family photo and then meet McGann's final child. At her house, Lillian pours vodka into one glass of orange juice and sets that and a second glass of plain orange juice down on a table where her young daughter is coloring. She steps away to greet her father who's coming in, and the little girl accidentally drinks some of her mother's vodka-spiked drink and clearly immediately feels guilty for having done so. The alcohol has gone to her head, though. She's just sitting there giggling when her mom goes back to the kitchen to finish dinner and her grandfather sits down to ask her about her drawings. Meanwhile, we see something blurry moving through the house, and the little girl can see it too, despite it being invisible to everyone else. She sees the woman with the long black hair and a white dress standing behind her mother. She tries to point it out to warn her mother, who only sees the creature right before it jams a hand through her back and kills her in the exact same way it killed her brother's. There's no writing this one off as an animal attack, though. Back at Garth's motel room, where Sam and Dean are now camping out too, Garth is trying to fix his not-at-all-broken EMF meter. We get a shot of Dean drinking from Bobby's flask in the background of Garth messing with it, though, in case the connection they're trying to make wasn't clear enough. Dean's coming up with nothing from the journal on an invisible monster, and is instead judging Garth on the motel room he's chosen. Garth defends it, saying, you want to soak in a hot tub after a long day of hunting, and then goes on to share more of his unique outlook on the world. He waxes poetic about the brewery owners who beautified the world through beer, only to have so much tragedy hit them. Sam's still researching and learning that Dale was also the brewmaster in charge of making all that beer, which just offends Dean. He thinks it's ridiculous that people go to so much trouble for beer, which he says should be in the same category as water, as he starts passing out cold thigh slapper ales to everyone. As soon as he gets close to Garth, though, the EMF meter Garth's tinkering with starts going off again, and Garth starts trying to put all of those pieces together. He's working on the Dean puzzle. Dean changes his mind about the beer the second he tastes it, though, agreeing it's actually awesome. And suddenly his entire outlook on the case shifts because he's allowed himself to just enjoy the fancy beer and dropped the performance of hating it on principle. Sam takes a few sips and agrees it's good, but Garth just chugs the entire bottle in one go and is also almost instantly drunk, giggling, wanting another beer. But Sam and Dean are still focused on the case and tell him no. Sam learned that Dale was pushed out of the business two weeks before he died because he didn't want to sell out to that distributor. And Dean realizes that's probably why the widow was suing. Before they can dig into that, a call comes across the police radio about a new murder at the McCann house. Garth wants to go investigate, but Sam says he's going to interview Dale's widow, leaving Dean to babysit a very tipsy Garth. At the McCann house, Garth points out there's no EMF on either his reader or Dean's, 
which he borrowed because his has been broken, right? And Dean doesn't even complain about that. He just lets it go that Garth took his gear without asking. They have other concerns, yes, but it feels like another, oh, that's just how Garth is, I guess I'll roll with it sort of deal for him. They need to talk to the little girl, but she's clearly traumatized and upset. So Garth tries his hand with Mr. Fizzles the sock puppet. Garth doesn't even talk to Dean about what he's going to do in advance, just throws Dean all off balance. And again, I love that. He tries talking to Tess normally, but she doesn't want to say what she saw. So he brings out Mr. Fizzles and Dean just rolls his eyes and tells him to put the puppet away. But Mr. Fizzles just wants to help, to listen. And yes, Mr. Fizzles has a credit in the episode as being played by himself. So that's how I'm going to talk about him, as a separate character. Dean thinks this is stupid, but Tess tells them that she saw a monster. When Dean asks why she was the only one who could see it, it's clear she's holding something back until Mr. Fizzles draws it out of her. He can tell when someone's being a liar. She blurts out that she had a sip of a grown-up drink and is scared that she's going to go to jail for that. But now they know that alcohol is a key to seeing this monster. At Dale's widow's house, Sam learns that Dale was angry that they'd sold the company out from under him. She describes the company as Dale's baby. She's furious with his partners, but Dale apparently forgave them, sent them a special bottle of sake in a gorgeous box that her husband wouldn't even let her touch. The same box that Sam noticed earlier in Baxter's office. Back in the car with Dean and Garth, they're trying to work out what kind of monster you have to be drunk to see, and Dean pulls out his flask and starts drinking. Dean tells Garth that he's strictly on wine coolers, and instead of being upset or offended, Garth is happy about that, because he loves those. And Dean is quickly realizing that it's pretty much impossible to insult Garth. Garth, though, asks about the flask, and when Dean says it was Bobby's, we see a flashback to the motel where Dean set it on the bar in front of Garth when it set off his EMF reader. Garth suggests that maybe Bobby's ghost is lingering around it. He provides very well-reasoned arguments for why it might be possible, and says it's a reason that their EMF readers keep going off but Dean doesn't want to deal with it while they're working on another case. Luckily for him, Sam calls and tells them about the sake box. They meet him back at the brewery, and Garth waits in the car while Sam and Dean break in. Sam opens the box to find the seal on the bottle is broken. They also notice a security camera in the office, so whatever was released from the bottle will hopefully show up on the security footage. They do see Trevor, our first victim, taking a few bottles of alcohol from the office, but they can't see anything else, and Dean realizes that they would need to be drunk to see it. He grabs a couple of bottles 
for him and Sam to drink. Sam asks if Dean can even get drunk anymore, and Dean proves that yes, he can. When they watch the video again, they see the monster just following him out. And Sam and Dean are really super drunk. Sam can barely make words, and Dean is just goofy. Which makes it clear that no matter how much we've seen Dean drink in the past, we rarely, if ever, see him good and properly drunk. He gets all squishy and tells Sam that he misses these talks where they could just be relaxed like that around each other. Unfortunately for them, the moment is cut short when an outraged Baxter finds them, and they are completely unprepared and far too drunk to think quickly on their feet as Baxter calls the cops on them. Before the police answer, Baxter seizes up and falls over, and we see Garth standing behind him with a taser in his hand. And the one cut scene from this episode takes place right here, where Garth picks up the phone and pretends he was trying to reach a pizza shop, misdialed, and then just hangs up. Sam and Dean are now the lushes that Garth is stuck babysitting, so most of what we miss in that little deleted scene is Garth being competent in his milieu, and Sam and Dean being goofball drunks in theirs. We cut to Sam and Dean holding coffee cups, trying to regain some semblance of sobriety, as they stand in an alley behind a Japanese restaurant, and the chef is translating the writing on the box for them. He tells them it says something akin to an eye for an eye, which feels ominous, and then asks if they're superstitious, because the bottle supposedly contains a shoujo, an unfriendly alcohol spirit. Soon as he realizes that, he shoves the box back into Sam's hands and looks shaken while telling them it's just a myth and they shouldn't worry about it. I really do hope they went back and had dinner there, like spent some money in this guy's restaurant. Yes, I know they pay him, but golly, it would be nice to show some goodwill to this poor guy. Back at the motel, we find Garth now has Baxter tied up in the hot tub with a pillowcase over his head. Dean tries to banter with him about it not ending well, and Garth banters back, but Sam interrupts them to get back on point. Shoujo, Japanese booze monster, which Sam learns that you can bind at your will with the right spell box, turning it into an attack dog to sick on your enemies. Garth points out that it's not targeting the people who screwed Dale over, and Sam says that Dale's widow thought of the company as his baby, so for revenge, he's killing the babies of the people who killed his child, so to speak. All while Dean's refilling his flask again. At least the monster can be killed, but only with a samurai sword that's been consecrated with a special blessing. As far as they know, there's only one more target of the spell, Marie. So Dean will go find a sword while Sam keeps watch over her, and Garth will stay behind with the unconscious Baxter. Garth strategically fumbles his EMF reader as Dean walks by, and it goes off again because of the flask. Garth uses this to try and needle Dean into considering his Bobby haunting theory, which Dean again tries to stop him from talking about. But Sam's curious about what Garth means, 
So Garth just flat out says he's concerned that Bobby's haunting them. Dean again tries to kill the conversation, but Sam says it's fine, and he looks a little shifty as he admits that he's already tried contacting Bobby with a talking board way back when the beer first disappeared in 7-Eleven Adventures in Babysitting. Dean's upset that Sam didn't include him in that, but we all know that Sam thinks Dean would have maybe skewed the results because he just wants it to be Bobby so badly. He thinks Dean wouldn't be objective about it. Sam, of course, didn't get a result because Dean specifically was not there with his flask. But Sam fully believes that he's right about this, and it's enabled him to write off all the other weird stuff and not allow himself to hope that it could be Bobby. And just like Garth's interactions with Dean wear away his performance mask, Sam does the opposite here and plays into Dean's performance mask refusing to hear Dean's side of things because Sam can't comprehend it. It's so much easier for him to just dismiss it because it's not his experience. Sam and Dean leave on their respective missions, leaving Garth behind with Baxter, who's now awake and handcuffed to the bathtub rail. Garth is kind to him, telling him he's there to help, even though this is a totally perplexing situation for poor Baxter. But then he starts trying to puzzle out what Dale was targeting for him, since he doesn't have any kids. Baxter says that he's still deeply affected by the McCann children's deaths, but Garth insists that Baxter is hiding something because of how many chances he'd given that slacker janitor kid earlier. And he just comes out and says it, all friendly, that he assumes that kid is actually Baxter's illegitimate son. His mother had been Baxter's secretary back in the day, and he'd had an affair with her. Baxter goes all quiet, and Garth gets right up in his face. No more Mr. Nice Garth. He tells Baxter it doesn't matter if nobody else knew about his secret love child, whether Dale knew it or not, because the monster that's killing kids will know, and his son will not be safe if he tries to hide that secret. And isn't that a rich lesson to learn here? That keeping secrets to protect yourself and your kids and your loved ones ends up being the thing that actually puts all of you in danger. Funny that, as if the show hasn't repeatedly tried to teach everyone that Secrets never end up protecting anyone. And again, it goes back to the lesson that things that are locked away never stay locked away and will always come back to bite you in the end, including secrets. Baxter finally comes clean and tells Garth that his son's at the brewery. Garth loads his pockets up with minibar bottles of alcohol, tosses the handcuff keys to Baxter, and says that if he cares about the kid at all, not to call the cops on him just yet. Then he heads out to the brewery to try and protect his son. At the brewery, his son is doing his job, cleaning the windows, and as he scrapes away the cleaning foam, we see the shoujo staring at him through the window. But of course, the kid can't see it at all. Back at the Japanese restaurant, 
Dean sets down a sword while the chef is holding up a paper with the spell he needs to read over it. And in perfect Winchester fashion, harking back to such classic spell substitutions as using a Spongebob placement as an altar cloth, Dean pulls out a plastic bottle of spring water since they didn't have a handy running spring nearby to bless the sword in. The chef is skeptical that it's going to work, but he goes along with it anyways, because again, to him, this is just a superstition, a myth, and this guy's paying him, and, you know, he'll humor the weirdo. Dean pours water over the blade while the chef recites the blessing. When he's done, his phone rings, and it's drunk Garth, who's dropping tiny empty liquor bottles and stumbling toward the brewery doors. He's drunkenly rambling about Baxter's secret love child, worried that the shoujo will target him first. And Dean is clearly worried for Garth, being drunk and incoherent, possibly going up against this monster completely unarmed. Meanwhile, Sam's steadily drinking at a restaurant where Marie is dining with a friend so that he can keep an eye on her and an eye out for the shoujo. Inside the brewery, Garth sees the monster and whispers that fact to Dean over the phone, who then gets in his car and zooms over there to help. And I haven't pointed it out yet, but we get all the Wayne's World references here, from the title of the episode to Garth using the alias Dan A. Carvey, to Dean driving a freaking pacer. All we're missing is a Bohemian Rhapsody sing-along. And I think Dean would totally be down for that. But he's too busy trying to save Garth's ass right now, who's currently grabbing Baxter's unwitting son, Lee, by the arm, trying to drag him away, telling him very drunkenly, Come with me if you want to live. While Dean drives, he calls Sam and tells him where the shoujo is. He asks if Sam is good to drive, which clearly he is not, and then tells him to get a ride then. Don't think, just move, because another kid is in immediate danger. Sam leaves the restaurant, FBI badging his way into taking someone else's cab outside, and unfortunately the driver can barely see over the wheel and has zero sense of urgency. He likes to drive safe, so he's just going to take it at his own speed. At the brewery, Lee tries to fight Garth off. He can tell he's drunk, thinks he's crazy. Garth tries to tell him the truth, that Baxter is his father, Dale tried to get revenge on him for screwing him over, and set a murderous Japanese alcohol spirit to kill him. Of course, Lee just thinks Garth's even crazier, but the part he's most surprised about is that Baxter is his father. While he's processing that, Garth sees the shoujo coming for them, tries to grab Lee again and drag him away, but Lee can't see the monster. What he can see is the invisible monster flinging Garth across the room, sending him smashing through a window. Lee starts running, now terrified, but since he can't see the monster, he has no idea where to run to. He heads for an open door, but it slams shut before he could reach it, and invisible claws drag across a wall. Lee takes off in the other direction and runs into Sam, who's just staggered in. Poor Lee is frantic now, telling Sam they have to get out of there. 
Sam asks where Garth is, and Lee says there was a guy, but he got knocked out. But before Sam can worry about Garth, he sees the shoujo coming for them and tells Lee to stay behind him. Lee is again confused, and Sam tells him that he's drunk, so he can see the monster. And I don't think that really clarifies anything for Lee, most likely. It's not like he knows how this monster operates. He's just learned monsters exist, apparently, you know. They spot an escape route, but that door also slams shut before they can run to it. Then, just like with Garth, the spirit flings Sam out of its way. He bounces off a wall hard enough for him to fall to the ground unconscious. Just as Lee's feeling terrified and alone, Dean arrives and starts swinging his sword around. Of course, Dean can't see the shoujo because he's stone-cold sober, so he's just swinging blindly, hoping to hit it. The monster gets a hit on Dean, knocking him down and sending the sword sliding away from him. But when Dean looks back at the still unconscious Sam, the sword reverses direction, zooming back into his hand. He grabs it and gets to his feet, completely weirded out by that, but he's got bigger issues right then. Sam finally stirs and starts telling Dean where the monster is, doing a drunken and slightly concussed job of it before he gets his bearings and gives Dean better instructions. Dean finally drives the sword through the monster, and the blessing on it clearly worked. The monster becomes visible for just a moment before it's destroyed and disappears. Dean is completely shaken. Sam and Lee head out to find Garth, who once again missed all the action. But left alone there, Dean tries not to let himself hope. He calls out to Bobby, asks if he's there, and he looks slightly desperate as he asks Bobby to do something, give him some sign that he's there. And as Dean looks on the verge of frustrated tears about it, we see Sam cautiously watching him, looking truly worried for his brother. The next morning, as they all prepare to leave the motel, Garth invites them to stay for brunch and brews. The potentially awkward goodbye turns soft and friendly when Garth just hugs each of them like they're all best friends now, and it makes all the awkwardness just vanish instantly. Garth is a magical human being. Hilariously, he admires Dean's ride, the stupid pacer. But even Sam cheerfully agrees that Garth has grown on him too. As soon as Garth is gone, though, Sam falls right back into judgmental mode to talk about it. Dean assumes it's about the talking board, that he's about to be lectured. But no, Sam heard him talking to Bobby at the brewery. Sam did not see the sword sliding. Remember, he was still unconscious. Dean tries to brush it off as his imagination, but Sam pokes at him. He knows something happens, and he wants Dean to be straight with him. I mean, first off, good freaking luck with that. But whatever. Dean tells him the truth. Not only about the sword moving itself, but we get a whole montage of all the times strange things have happened that Dean had wondered if maybe Bobby had been responsible for. The beer disappearing in 7-Eleven, the paper that magically appeared on top of their research pile in 713 The Slice Girls, 
And then last week, Bobby's journal falling to the floor and the only thing falling out being the number of the guy who found Cass for them. Dean is presenting all of this very grumpily because he still isn't sure whether Bobby is there or not. He himself is still in doubt. There's a lot of compelling evidence, but because Sam's personal tests came up negative, Sam has had to rationalize away why. He's convinced himself that all of these things are coincidences because they want it to be Bobby, because they're missing him. And that's put Sam in a position to continue just coming up with marginally rational explanations for what all of these things must actually be. Dean looks shaken, like he doesn't really buy it, but he's trying to convince himself too, because Sam just seems so damn sure of himself. Dean suggests that Bobby would have let them know he was still there, right? Because who knows more about being a ghost than Bobby does? And yet, all they have are these vague notions and coincidences, and nothing directly telling them that Bobby is there. But with that conversation out of the way, if still feeling entirely unresolved, Dean asks if Sam wants to go to brunch. But no, he's too hungover still, and just wants to get out of there. When Dean shuts the motel room door, the camera pans back around to where a rollaway bed is sitting in the middle of the room, with Dean's flask perched on top. And we see that Bobby is standing right there. Dean almost drives off without it, but then he realizes at the last second, goes back inside, and we see Bobby, but Dean very clearly still can't. Bobby thinks that Dean might be able to see him for just a second when Dean says, There you are, all fondly. But that was just for the flask. Poor Bobby is clearly getting frustrated with Dean, too, barking out, I'm right here, Idjit! But then he flickers and disappears as Dean heads back out and drives off. And that's how this episode ends. We learn what the show has been hinting at since Bobby died, and what his choice with the Reaper was in the end. Of course he chose to stay. And even now that we have absolute proof that it was Bobby's ghost all along, trying to help them out, Sam has convinced Dean that he had to be imagining things, that his instincts are off, because he just wants it to be Bobby. That Dean isn't fully engaging with reality. Because this has been Sam's struggle all season long. And he's still trying to adjust to not having to compensate for the constant hallucinations that Lucifer had been inflicting on him. He's unable to see that Dean's experiencing something real, partly just out of the fear that he himself is trying to come to terms with, that he can't really trust reality yet. It's also a tidy metaphor for how they're better when they're working together and on the same page. If Sam had only included Dean in some of his tests, used the talking board when Dean and his constant companion of the flask were present, his results would have been wildly different. But Dean is also trying to trust Sam again, even if doing so is crushing a little bit of the hope in himself. And it's all just painful, especially when we get to see Bobby's frustration there at the end. 
we might be wondering why Bobby's struggling so hard to make his presence known to them. And in some ways, I think it could be a matter of him trying too hard. He's got so much emotional investment, and he's burning through all of his ghostly powers just trying to be helpful to them, trying to do what he can, and doesn't have enough left over to just materialize and wave high, you know? There's also the little matter of the narrative screwing him over. The way it screwed with Cass that we talked about last week. The way that Dale got screwed over by his partners in the brewery this week. Cass had been kept out of the story with a convenient case of amnesia and a babysitter to keep him out of trouble who wouldn't ask any pesky questions or take Cass into the authorities to try and find out who he really was. And it kind of feels like Bobby's ghost has also been prevented from helping too much, from making himself known too soon, before it would have the most narrative punch to the big reveal. And honestly, I'd like to give Chuck a good narrative punch or two myself. But this is his story and we're just here to be victimized by it. I think that's most of what I wanted to say on this one for now. My tag for this episode only has two pages of posts if you're craving more quality Mr. Fizzles content. So I'm just going to leave it here for now. But next week, Sam and Dean will finally learn the truth about Bobby's ghost. And Sam will learn absolutely nothing about trusting Dean from this experience. So join me next week for Season 7, Episode 19 of Grave Importance. And I know this is an often overlooked or forgotten episode, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, even for a Buck Lemming episode. Vengeful spirits ahoy, though, reminding us that we may have Bobby's ghost back, but there's also a ticking clock on that before he will inevitably go vengeful, too. Until then, you can find me on Tumblr, at MittensMorgle, or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord and Blue Sky as MittensMorgle, or you can email me at MittensMorgle at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. And yes, of course, I have Mr. Fizzle's mittens, purchased from Stan's. I don't know if they still sell them, but if they do, they are the super coziest mittens I've ever had. Like, <laughs> and they're adorable, because they're Mr. Fizzle's. But yeah, that's probably one of my favorite things I've bought from Stan's over the years. I, I just love those mittens. Mr. Mittens, you know, my spouse. <laughs> Put him on. He, was, he couldn't find his gloves when we were shoveling snow the other day. And uh, I was like, here, you can wear these. They're really warm and cozy. And he get, he gets them on and he looks at them like, the hell no. And he's like, oh, well, I got to go put my shoes on anyway. So he takes them off. And then he just conve- conveniently forgets to put them back on. So I think he wore another pair of my mittens. <laughs> I couldn't convince him to wear Mr. Fizzles. Anyway, I love them. But, you know, I'm me. Anyway. Have a good one, everyone.